heat waves um, cause more deaths than any other natural disaster. We tend to focus on the ones that have the largest impact on infrastructure. So, you know, we tend to talk about, okay, Hurricane Harvey, when it hit Houston, caused, you know, approximately $200 billion worth of damage. Hurricane Sandy, when it hit New York City in 2012, caused about $90 billion of damage regionally. And so those are really massive impacts. But when you think about who's being affected every single year by heat waves that are slowly increasing, especially in our cities, which tend to be very hot compared to the rural countryside, that's where the most people died. Welcome to From the Field, a podcast logging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world, one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. On this episode, I speak with Tymon McPherson. Hi, my name is Tymon McPherson. I am an associate professor of urban ecology at the New School, and I direct the Urban Systems Lab. My work and the work of the lab is motivated by the way in which climate is changing the planet at a large scale and also um, changing things at a small scale, meaning in our cities, um, in in our neighborhoods, in our backyards. When we look out, 30 or 50 or 80 years into the future, in that context, that seems very far away for most of us. And yet the way in which climate, as a particular example, is changing so fast, I'm quite concerned actually about where we are headed in 50, 60, um, 100 years from now um, with with the current trajectories, which the kind of climate um, change that we are expecting and it's not just climate change it's you know it's it's changes in the nitrogen cycles it's changing changing biodiversity you know, the the amount of species on the planet is plummeting so it's not some kind of far in the future idea to look at 2050 or 2080 or 2100 and say hmm i wonder how the planet's going to be different what we're going to have to deal with but as i brought this ecological view of the city into our work we realized that what we're really talking about is the city as a system, and that who's in the lab are planners, economists, um, designers, data visualization experts, various kinds of social scientists of, of all stripes. Implementing a multifaceted group is something Timon recognizes as a crucial time saver when it comes to innovative development. Timon's upbringing seems to have influenced his idea. I grew up in East Central Indiana, basically on the back 40 acres of a small family farm. So it's a very poor region, poor family. And, you know, basically what we really had as a major benefit in our lives was this 20-acre woods um, behind the fishing cabin that I grew up in on a small pond. And this is a very traditional way in the farming communities in the Midwest, which was when those were um, logged and gridded up and turned into farmland, essentially a grid of one mile by one mile squares of roads were put in and that's cut into farm fields and generally you would keep the front 120 acres for farming and the back 40 for subsistence um, farming for the family. Our family trips were to go camping in the Smoky Mountains. That was like the the great big trip um, if, if and when we were able to do that. So that drove me to go to college and study environmental biology, then from my undergraduate to pursue graduate studies in ecology and evolution and natural resources, um, which was at Rutgers University. 
in New Jersey. And from there, I went to the American Museum of Natural History as a biodiversity scientist and then to Columbia University and to um, my, my current position at the New School in, in downtown Manhattan now. Going back to uh, my childhood, one of the observations I had over the years was how the runoff from the farm fields and the changing farm practices were bringing excess nutrients into the pond and slowly killing my family pond. We had major fish kills where all the fish in the entire pond would die. These are things that I noticed sort of personally in our my own, quote, backyard, whether it's this kind of um, pollution from agricultural runoff or it's CO2 pollution in the atmosphere um, or other things that humans are doing around the planet that are really disrupting the ability of our environments to function well and provide us with, in the case of my family pond, a nice place to go swimming and fishing you know, really a source of recreation for the family. That's fundamentally what it was about. And that's been completely damaged by, you know, lack of good management. So I feel it's important for us to be working on multiple fronts simultaneously, um, as opposed to say one for 10 years and then another issue for another 10 years, uh, because we've just got so many issues to solve. And I, I fundamentally believe that they're solvable. And most of the time we have the tools that we need we need to be applying them and applying many of them simultaneously. The same idea of working on multiple issues at the same time is actually happening on an international level. In 2015, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development came into effect at a United Nations summit. The idea being that 17 various goals like ending hunger, protecting our oceans, and battling climate change will be completed by the year 2030. It's a task that Timon takes seriously. The UN and almost all the countries around the world have signed on to this. The Sustainable Development Goals have been set for 2030, which is a very ambitious target. I think we're going to struggle getting there, right? It's like, wow, it is 2018. So we have 12 years to, to yeah, we have 12 years to like solve poverty and climate change and biodiversity loss. And though, you know, I'm, it's not to poke fun of it. That's exactly what we need to be doing. We need these targets so we know what we've got to do today and next year and the year after. Otherwise, we're already off track. So I think the sustainable development goals are critical. Um, and yet, at the same time, we need to operationalize them in our own cities. To address the problem, first, we have to understand it. Global warming essentially is the observation that the planet is on average warming up at, um, in terms of its surface temperature and actually many other temperatures, like the average ocean temperature is warming consistently year after year. And it varies. There are periods where it might decrease or might increase a little bit. But on the whole, if you look over the last 50 or 100 years, um, and, and actually much longer than that, you see this very consistent warming trend, and it's at a global scale, and it's the aggregation of a number of sensors that are measuring temperature at the surface of the land, at the surface of the ocean, all around the world. And when you plot all of those on the same graph, you get this warming trend. It's getting warmer over time. So that's where the term global warming comes from. And it's a reasonable term because that's what we're observing, a warming trend. On the other hand, what's actually happening on the planet is that that warming is changing our climate. And the fundamental way it changes climate is complex. Um, and it means that in any one place, you might have it warming or cooling. You might have um, much more extreme precipitation or you might have drought setting in. Uh, and so it varies. What comes to mind when you think of climate change? Starving polar bears? 
melting glaciers? While that's all true, there's a less visible consequence of climate change that we don't really hear about. And that's heat waves in our cities. The reason I really focus um, my work in cities is because when we think about the impact on people and on infrastructure, cities are where the most infrastructure and the most people exist. So even though there's only you know, 3% of the planet, um, of the land area, that is in that has been urbanized in a really direct way, you know, basically paved over with buildings built on top. Um, that houses the majority of the human population, and in a place like the United States, it's eighty-four percent of the population lives in that area. It's not just the majority; that's almost all of us. In Africa and Asia, it's quickly becoming that. So they're transforming um, in terms of their urban development so fast; it's kind of mind-boggling. And so that concentration of people and resources and where will we feel the impacts of climate change the most, we're going to feel them in cities. And probably even particular, I'd say, in coastal areas, because coastal areas have a whole additional layer of climate change to worry about, which is sea level rise and coastal storms and storm surge. And when you think about where the majority of people in cities live, the majority of the cities, but the majority of people are in coastal cities. Climate change is having enormous impact already on our planet. That's huge. Most of us live in a city. I live in a city. That's almost all of us on the planet using the roads, buildings, pipes, and wires structured within them. To help us understand why cities will be affected in this way, Tynan suggests looking at the city as its own ecosystem. The way we think about cities, at least the way, the way I think about it and, and the, the colleagues that I work with, is that cities are pretty complex entities, actually, but you can, you can understand them at least this is the scientific hubris anyway, we, we can understand them um, in the way we might understand any system. And so one, I think, real breakthrough that really comes out of urban ecology is to understand the city as we would a pond or a forest and to study it that way. Only it has this additional layer of complexity, which is this built-up infrastructure that people manage and build and develop. And we have this concentration of people. Because people have been part of ecosystems as long as people have been people. People have been managing and, and the influence, the reciprocal influence between people and nature has been there for millennia. But in cities, it's really fast-paced and um, it's very concentrated. So when we think about something like climate change causing heat waves, we have to take it very seriously that um, heat waves can cause damage over a very short period of time. Most cities are what we call urban heat islands, right? And it's because of all of that pavement and buildings that it captures heat and holds onto it in the way that the more suburb and exurb landscapes around cities don't have as much pavement or as much buildings. That infrastructure is not as dense. And so they are much cooler. And so already cities are hotter without any climate change. That's just about the way that we've developed and I think one of the most important things we have to change is the way we develop cities so that we reduce the urban heat island. I'm not talking about climate change yet. This is just about the fact that cities are hot because of the way we build them. So when you add climate change onto that, that makes cities even hotter. And so when a heat wave happens, cities experience that heat um, very intensely. And people in particular parts of the city experience it um, much hotter than others. So you can see on a hot summer day in New York City, 
you know, 30 degrees Fahrenheit difference between some areas of the city and others. You know, the rooftops of buildings are extremely hot. The pavement is extremely hot. In the middle of Central Park or Prospect Park in New York City, it's it can be 10, 15 degrees cooler um, than it might be just outside the park on the sidewalk. New Yorkers know what to do when it's hot and sunny out. We walk on the shaded sides of the block to cool off or avoid heat emitting from public buses or subway grates. But even still, that's just a quick fix to an immediate problem. When you think about who's being affected every single year by heat waves that are slowly increasing, especially in our cities, that's where the most people die, the most people go to the hospital. We need to be protecting our people and protecting, in particular, I'd say, the the people who tend to get hit every time. Um, And that's a subset of people. That is the most vulnerable groups of the elderly, you know, um, babies, low-income and minority groups that tend to feel the impacts of heat waves or or flood impacts or or other impacts of climate change more uh, than the rest of the population. It's even possible for these particular groups to be impacted at a greater level than others who live just blocks away. Some people who can afford it have air conditioning. Um, and some people who can't afford it don't. And that heat then doesn't change for them. It comes in, it gets very hot, and it just stays that way. Generally what this means is that it's the heat index is 100 degrees or more for one or more days. Or it's 95 um, degrees, the heat index, for two or more days, right? And so the idea of a heat wave is that it lasts. It's not okay, it, it was really hot between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. and then it's gone. It's that this heat sort of sent to the city for a day or two. And one of the things we've noticed in New York, when they put temperature sensors inside people's homes, that temperature doesn't drop at night like it does outside because that heat um, is held on by the building. Essentially, the insulation in the building isn't thick enough to keep the heat out but it's just perfect enough to keep the heat in. It maintains that heat, and that can even last when the heat wave is over. So people are experiencing very high heats over long periods of time, and physiologically, you have to allow your body to cool down. And you can you can manage going out on the hot street for a few hours or, or even half a day, but in the evening, your body has got to have a recovery period. Otherwise, that's where heat-related um, stress, morbidity, and mortality set in. This isn't just something that Tymon and the Urban Systems Lab have theorized. It's a reality brought to their attention from the people living it. I had an older gentleman in my office um, not too long ago who is on a fixed income, right? And so, you know, basically what that means, in at least in the United States, is that you're basically living on Social Security. Uh, you have very limited resources in terms of what you can do with that. He can't afford air conditioning because he can't afford the monthly bill, right? So even if I... Um, or, or some other you know, good person was to give him an air conditioner, he wouldn't turn it on because he can't pay the bill. And that's the case for lots of people. He also fits into this most vulnerable group, the number one most vulnerable group of people who are um, likely to suffer from heat, whether it's a heat-related illness that, that takes them to the hospital or whether they literally die from it. And you know, we have on the order of 600 people die from heat wave, heat-related deaths a year in New York City and that's just the baseline. Right? And that's what no one's even talking about, right? So, you know, he comes to me and he literally says to me, I'm going to die in my apartment. Like, oh my God, <laughs> what, you know, what can I do? And he said, well, you know, it, 
his story really illustrates the complexity of solving these problems and I think why we have to deal with the underlying problem which is to make our city cooler and we need to be providing him with air conditioning and helping pay his bills. So in this this gentleman's case in particular and he was about 85 years old and he said the the problem is he said look I'm I've lived through a lot of this I know what to do the interior of my building is cool and if I can get some of that cooler air where there's no light penetration and it's you know coming up the stairwells from the basement if I can crack my door and crack my window just right it will come through my apartment reduce the temperature and I can sit near the door and feel a little bit cooler and yet the fire code requires that the door be shut and so then he's fined by his landlord because the door is open and it's against fire code so it has to be shut and the landlord's finding him because he's being fined by the city for breaking fire code if this situation seems complicated to you that's because it is not only do immediate issues like non-air conditioned buildings need to be addressed but also the longer term issues like figuring out how to lower the overall temperature in the city and for that matter the world it just illustrates how We've got to deal with a lot of things simultaneously. We have to think about the way we govern the city. We have to think about the regulations and whether they need to be changed when we're thinking about climate change and its impacts on cities. It means we need to be thinking about how do we deal with heat waves and coastal flooding and high winds and extreme precipitation and surface flooding, right? All of these things that are being driven by climate change, and we've got to deal with them together. It's a combined problem. You can't really solve this in a piecemeal way. That's not transformative change. One of the ways to make a change is to go back to our roots, literally. I think we are fundamentally, spiritually, emotionally connected to nature. And so when we're around it, we sort of naturally bond with it. One of my sort of most serious concerns about where we are at a sort of planetary scale in terms of what the human enterprise is doing, is that this retreat, to some extent, this retreat from nature into cities, it's caused us to lose some of that connection and that ability to not only use nature as a tool and a resource for ourselves, but to understand the value of it for maintaining the enterprise of humanity on the planet, for really maintaining civilization. With climate change, heat waves are expected to increase. They're expected to increase in terms of their intensity, how long they last, and how often they come. In New York City, for example, depending on whether you take a sort of middle path approach or expect more business as usual in terms of our ability to mitigate the climate, by 2050, we expect our heat waves in that sort of upper scenario where we haven't really done that much to mitigate global climate to triple. Heat waves might triple in terms of the number of heat waves. Um, in even a middle path scenario, they're going to triple by 2080. So we're looking at the potential for some catastrophic heat waves um, to affect, in this case, just New York City, let alone all the other cities around the world. And in some recent work where we've modeled that with some of our colleagues at NASA, the 30 cities, 30 global cities around the world, every single one of them is projected to get hotter. There are no exceptions. We have to develop in a way that's much more connected to nature. Because even the most simple analysis shows you that when you have more nature outside the city, it's cooler and people are not experiencing heat in the same way. So integrating nature back into the city, I think, is one of the most important ways that we can cool the city and not necessarily say just cool this building or that building, but cool the entire city to really take the bottom out of that heat 
by reducing the urban heat island impact itself. One option is to include spaces with green landscapes or water elements. This is something that we tend to talk about as green and blue infrastructure, sort of bringing green and blue spaces into the city in a way that's much more holistic. And I I also would um, say that is probably in terms of priorities targeted towards the areas that are on the one hand hottest and on the other hand, where the most vulnerable people to heat live. Paris recently, for example, um, has mandated that all new buildings are either have to have solar on top or a green roof because they're going to have to be dealing with the heat and energy problem in every new building. We should have something like that in our cities. And yet that's still not transformative enough to really meet the challenge that will be in our laps 2030 and in 2050. I think that we have to think differently about the city itself. It's a three-dimensional place and we need to be thinking three-dimensionally about where the nature can come in. Right now it's very flat. Almost all the nature and even, you know, what we tend to highlight as major advances in bringing nature into the city, bringing green infrastructure into the city is at the surface. It's down where you walk. But if we're thinking about combating heat and not just heat, absorbing air pollution, helping absorb stormwater, which produces all the surface flooding, um, which has a lot of health impacts, providing new spaces for recreation, putting it in places where people um, are most vulnerable or even not vulnerable, just would like to have recreational areas, and then they don't have as many parks in some of these poor neighborhoods. I started imagining how the city would look if it were fully integrated with nature. I pictured moss and vines growing on buildings and green throughways connecting to larger green spaces, a utopia of sorts. And it's actually kind of what Timon is proposing. Everything from green walls and roofs and thinking about a connected network where the nature outside the city can move in and through the city and so that we're connected to our rural landscape and i think this is really about reconnecting the urban and the rural and that is on the one hand about how we think about cities and about how we think about this traditional divide between the urban and the rural on the other hand it's about climate change adaptation and it's about really transforming the way we build and retrofit and design our cities so that we are really using the tools that we have in nature and integrating them in a hybrid way with our infrastructure. And to me, this is rethinking the way we engineer um, our systems. This is rethinking design and the way we design buildings and design roads and design bridges and design all the infrastructure that we provide in cities so that people can have the services that they expect there. That can mean cooling centers, greenery, and more. It sounds great and would make a positive impact to the city. But Timon shares that sometimes even his smaller projects haven't always worked out. Like when he and his team at the Urban Systems Lab completed a tree planting project in New York City. In some neighborhoods, um, people ripped the trees out. We were puzzled, you know. We're like, who doesn't want a tree? Um, And yet, if you go to talk to people, which, you know, we don't always do like we should. If you go to talk to people and they say... It's not about the tree. It's that this is where our kids play and the tree's in the way. They're playing soccer in the street because that's their playground. They don't have a park nearby in some of these neighborhoods. The street is their yard. Um, Trees also are where people throw their trash out to get picked up because they can kind of lean it up there. So if you have a tree, other people are going to throw trash in front of your house. The trash attracts rats. So now you've got a rat magnet in front of your house. You know, we can sort of propose large-scale solutions, but implementing them is complicated. And it's because the city is complicated. It really is a complex organism. 
and it's evolving. And there's so many parts. You know, um, by one account, there's 700 languages spoken in New York City. How do you communicate with all of those people? So the social side of this is extremely complex and is, you know, um, in terms of adapting to climate change, it's probably the most important one. It's probably, it, you know, I'm, on the one hand, I'm sort of trying to drive the conversation forward about getting the city to make a serious investment in, in green roofs and in bringing nature into the city. But on the social side, there's even more work to do to think about the our behavioral change and governance and, and justice issues. I think that it's a slow process, but I also think it's organic. And so I'm not really concerned about it as a what I, I guess I'm most concerned about is um, that we're on that trajectory, that that we actually choose to and and develop the policies and the plans and train our managers and train our designers and start thinking differently about the city that we want and the city that we want to build so that um, it is fundamentally transformed 30, 40 years from now. And the way to do that is for scientists to start reaching out. Tymon and his team are doing this through 3D modeling and putting a picture to the heat waves. I think in general, we're pretty bad at communicating what science knows. So communicating science is like, it's a serious challenge. We've got to figure this out because scientists have figured out a lot of things and can, and, and can even sort of evaluate how interventions or solutions or, or various practices that people might have, whether they're likely to have the impact we're looking for, right? That's, that's where modeling comes in. Our ability to take an intervention, to model what that would look like and sort of project out, is that going to do what we want it to do? So let's say it's a green roof. You know, how much will that green roof cool the building? And how many green roofs do we need to cool the city? This is a question we're trying to answer right now. It, it would be nice to know, and I think it's something that we can tell the city, is if you invested this amount of money and you retrofitted this many roofs and you would have this total amount of green infrastructure on those roofs as green roofs, and that would deliver this amount of cooling. One, one study um, about a decade ago from uh, Cynthia Rosenzweig's team at NASA did that kind of estimate then and said, well, we could probably cool the city about almost one degree Celsius um, if we turned 50% of our roofs green. You know, it sounds somewhat like a small number, but it's like climate change. One degree Celsius is a massive change in temperature, right? So that's seriously cooling. Now we've really started to chop off the top of the urban heat island and make that city cooler. So um, communicating that science, though, in a way that we can make better decisions, whether that's... um, in city planning office uh, or in the mayor's office or whether that's for a local nonprofit that's doing community organizing about um, how they want to uh, change their neighborhood. Either way, we need to help communicate that science and make it available. And we need to also make it more visual. People are very visual. It's important for us to think about how we visualize both um, the information that we have and the kind of analyses that we can do. And so that's something we've been doing in the Urban Systems Lab is to build a model of the city where we can help answer some of these questions. Scientists have their work cut out for them, but so do we. Timon believes involving ourselves with our community will help brace us for the coming years and our battle against climate change in our cities. Cities are actually where the action is. I think we need to speed it up and we need to be more transformative. I, I think the sort of simplest thing is Find a local community organization and go volunteer. 
there's just amazing organizations that are doing amazing work locally in their neighborhood, connected to people. They know who needs help. They know where the opportunities are in a way that at the larger scale, we're trying to figure that out, but they already know. Um, and this is a way that you can plug in, whether it's helping to establish a community garden in a neighborhood um, and provide a resource, not just for, for food and nutrition, but for people to meet up and, and form relationships. And that forming relationships is critical to weathering storms. You know, the thing that we learned from Chicago heat wave and from the European heat wave and from uh, the blackouts in New York City and the, the Hurricane Sandy that hit when, um, when I was there too was that it's about people's connections that allow them to get through this. So that coping capacity has everything to do about your social network. And so, you know, what people can do is really think about how do you build the capacity for coping with extreme events in your neighborhood? Where can you plug in? What organization can you be involved in? And then there's particular actions that you can do, like, well, you can help cool the city, you know, figure out how to um, start planting or greening up your building. Talk to your landlord about what you can do on the rooftop um, or in your backyard. I think that's the starting point for uh, climate action is plugging into your community, being an active member and finding a role that suits your interests and your passion, um, but that has a benefit uh, beyond you to the neighborhood. On the next episode of From the Field. Geothermal is a resource that's, it's there. It's happening. It's in my backyard here. It's, it's, it's under the city where you are. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Whether we take advantage of it or not, I mean, that's, that's up to us. From the Field is written and recorded by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Editing and sound design by Danush Parvana. Final mix by Andy Stein. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn and artwork by Atea Nujicharis. Special thanks to our guest, Tymon McPherson. If you enjoyed this episode of From the Field or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and please visit fromthefieldpodcast.com for photos, show notes, guest links, and more. 